Welcome to the MacroFab Engineering Podcast. We are your guests, Ken Gracie. And I'm Chip Gracie. And we are your hosts, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. This is episode 166. A quick announcement before we jump into the podcast. KeyCon 2019 is a user conference for a popular open source CADS program, KeyCAD, happening April 26th and 27th, 2019 in Chicago, Illinois. This is the first and largest gathering of hardware developers using KeyCAD. Talks at the conference will span hardware design, revision control, scripting, manufacturing considerations, proper library management, and getting started developing the underlying tools. All announced talks have been listed on the conference site, which is in the show notes. So go check that out. Ken Gracie is leader and CEO of Parallax. Ken is a UC Davis alumni who lives and breathes Parallax products and has done so around the world. He is all about family, working smart, having fun, mountaineering, and riding his unicycle. Chip Gracie is a Parallax founder. He had his first major introduction to programming and electronics when he was 13 years old with the Timex Sinclair computer. After Chip graduated high school, he and his techie friends from the 7th grade started Parallax at their homes in 1987. Chip designed the first low-cost tools for the PIC microcontrollers. That led to the development of the first basic stamp module released in 1993. So, Ken and Chip, what is the Parallax story? <laughs> it's long at this point. It's long. It's like a saga, and there are different phases to it. Yeah, so 87, that was when I was born. Same here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I was young. Well, Chip, you should probably talk about what it was like back in those days, just for a minute or so. Like all the people all right. would show up at our house for days and they would smell bad and wouldn't leave. Right. Okay. <laughs> well, um, I've always been into electronics and then I got into computers when, you know, that Timex Sinclair became available. Our eighth grade teacher had that. And then I saved up. I did a paper route for a long time and I uh, eventually had enough money to buy an Apple II. And I really learned a lot using the Apple II. And uh, so um, I had designed a, a lot of little things for that, maybe notably some development systems that would allow you to use the Apple II as a development platform for the uh, VIC-20 and Commodore 64 computers. So I made a cross-development system that used uh, a popular assembler on the Apple II called, well, I had Merlin, and before that I was using Lisa. They were both pretty good. But I actually liked Lisa better, but we had to stick with Merlin because that's what the game developers wanted. So. I had a little card that I designed that plugged into the Commodore 64 and then attached back to the game port on the Apple II, and it would allow you to download programs during uh, assembly on the PC. And then uh, you could then run and debug them live using uh, non-maskable interrupts as the user code ran on the other machine. So I sold, I think, several hundred of those things altogether, and they went to um, Electronic Arts and uh, Activision, um, serious software, a lot of those kinds of companies. And that, and I was 15 at the time. And, uh, I remember building those circuit boards, you know, doing all the soldering, getting the manuals printed at a print shop, copying the discs, boxing them up into little packages, then going to the local convenience store to ship them off. And that was all stateside, of course. And, uh, that was kind of, before Parallax, but then uh, working with me at that time was my friend from the seventh grade, Lance Wally. Um, I met him at a seventh grade computer club, and he came there with a, 
like an, a, I think it was an 8K memory card he had built for the VIC-20. And he had hand soldered it and it was kind of interesting. And so he understood what, elect, what transistors did. And it took me a while to get my head around that. But um, we worked together on a lot of things. And eventually, after uh, we got out of high school, we both graduated in 86. Uh, we wanted to do something, so we started Parallax. And um, our first products were just expansion cards for the Apple IIGS, like memory cards and sound digitizers, things of that nature. And then we went off and did other things. We made a billiard room timer that used X10 protocol to control lights over pool tables and then tabulate what each customer's tab was. And um, eventually we got into making development tools, which is when I was pretty much doing all the engineering then and Lance was running the company, kind of like Ken does today. And, uh, but making you know the development tools was kind of like going back to the first thing I had built for the uh, Apple II and the Commodore 64. So that's kind of been our mainstay. It's kind of where my interest lies. Um, and so I like making things that other people use to make other things. And <clears throat> everything we've done to date has pretty much revolved around that kind of thing. We haven't made any like special dedicated products that did anything. Everything we've made is extensible and used to build other things. So where did the name Parallax come from? Well, we were going to be called Path Incorporated. And then I had gone off. We had an exchange student from Finland in the 85, 86 school year. So in the summer of 86, 87, 87, I'd gone off to Europe to see him, and I did the interrail thing and went all over. I saw Ken there. He was there with his German class from high school. He was, Ken was two years behind me in school. He's two years younger. Um, but when I was gone, Lance found that Path Incorporated was taken, so then he came up with Parallax. So when I came home, that was the name of our business. <laughs> and it just stuck, right? Yep. So I'm, I'm curious, in the uh, mid to late 80s, um, you being 15 and developing these products on your own, how did you learn all of these things? How did you, at that age, learn to get into it and figure it out? Uh, just a really intense interest. I remember just really, well, I was fascinated by video games. I really couldn't get my head around how they worked. And as far as I understood, they were kind of infinite, like Battlezone, if you remember that game where you drive around <laughs> with a tank. You know, yeah. I mean, it probably had like a 4K ROM in it, but. To me, it was just very mysterious. And so I'd go to Radio Shack where they'd sell computers and I'd ask the guy there, how do you do this? How, how do you make a ball bounce? And no one had any answers to anything. So when I was in the eighth grade, our teacher uh, started using these Timex Sinclair computers to teach programming and logic. And uh, that's when things kind of congealed for me. And then uh, my dad, uh, he was a chemical engineer at Aerojet. And uh, he would bring home an Apple II that he had on the weekends that he used for his uh, scientific stuff. And I just learned to program on that. And the Apple II was a lot of fun. And Steve Wozniak did a really high quality job with the whole thing. Um, you know, the ROM was high quality. When I started working with the Commodore 64 and VIC-20, I thought maybe a lot of mistakes had been made. But I just didn't realize that Wozniak was a perfectionist and he did everything right. And the VIC-20 and Commodore 64 were more like how everything else was going to be in the future, you know, where it kind of barely works and it isn't that reliable, but that's just what everybody ingests and they suppose this is normal. But the Apple II was outstanding. And so I really had developed a taste for, you know, things working really well and an expectation that they ought to work right from those early days. 
So, uh, Ken, how did uh, you get involved with Parallax? Well, it's, <clears throat> actually, I was probably the first employee um, at Parallax when I was in college making cables and stuff for Chip and Lance. But, you know, watching for a number of years, uh, curiously from the distance, was a lot of fun. Um, but about five years after I was doing my own career, uh, Chip and his partner were having a parting of ways. And this was in 97. And um, it was a tough time for the business. But I think I just started helping Chip with some marketing from a distance while I was doing my own, pursuing my own career. And then sooner or later, I just wound up working really for him in Rockland years ago. And uh, it's just been a lot of fun. But even before Ken worked there, so he came in at year 10, his wife had been our controller for maybe, what, three years prior to that? Mm -hmm. She had been, Ken married her in 95, and she had been a cost accountant at Pepsi, but she started working for us in maybe it was 94, 95. Well, probably after you were married, right? Um, and then she retired, sort of. She wanted to go do other things about, what, a year and a half ago? Right. She'd had enough of the excitement. <laughs> oh, there's a lot of stress. You know, it, there's just a lot of stress making ends meet. And over 30 years, it can become kind of grueling. You know, we've been at this now for... 32 years. Yeah. I mean, here's the truth. Like it's actually kind of easier to, to grow a business, but businesses go up and down and we've had to disassemble and then grow up several times over that period. And like Chip said in the very beginning, sort of change trajectory and things around you are always changing, but we have, you know, certain constants, but it's a learning process, right, Chip? Right. Right. More learning than you can stand. Well, well, and and with the fact that Parallax began in '87, and you were building development tools in '93, is when you offered your first actual IC, correct? Uh, it was night. Let's see. The BS one. The yeah, that was the uh, module based on the uh, microchip pick parts, um, and then we worked with a company in '96 to design a chip which worked like the. Uh, Pick 16 C5X line for microchip. It was like, had about 20 times the performance. And uh, that was our first involvement in any kind of chip project. But that was enough to kind of, you know, give me some framework in which we could begin our own project. So I started working on the Propeller 1 chip in 98, and that was finished in 2006. So that was an eight year project. Wow. Um, what, what made you decide to go? To, uh, chip development? Well, I've, I really like programming microcontrollers. I really like the idea of a microcontroller, you know, a whole system in one little chip. And uh, so that really fascinated me. And having programmed PICS quite a lot and every machine I ever worked with, I worked with in assembly language primarily. So I had some ideas about what ought to be. And so the, our chips, like the, uh, the propeller chips, are designed to be programmed in assembly language. You can certainly write compilers for them, but they're very friendly and ergonomic to the programmer at the assembly language level. And that's all with complete intent. And the way things have gone otherwise in the world is that if you look at a modern assembly language, it's almost unreadable. You know, there's lots of consonants stacked up and you can't figure out what these mnemonics mean. And the, what's going on is those things are designed really with only 
high-level language compilation in mind. So they put things into the assembly language that are uh, friendly for people writing compilers, but they don't put anything beyond that because it's just there's no one's ever going to attempt to do anything with it probably. So they address all real-time stuff through dedicated peripherals, which communicate through probably memory mapped registers, which use some kind of libraries, which you, you know are opaque to the user, as well as the hardware for that matter. And uh, that's how real-time is addressed. So the software never really runs that real-time. It's all over the place. If you try to like take any you know modern chip with a pipeline and a cache, and you suppose you're making a square wave and you look at it on a scope, it's jittery as all get out because there's all kinds of stuff going on that is great for making the program run as fast as possible, but it's completely not in inclined to make anything, you know, low jitter, real time stable. So I wanted to make stuff that could do both. Your comment about uh, library abstractions actually gets me all the time when I will start development on like an EFM8 chip, which is a Silicon Labs chip. And you're like, you, you load up their example stuff and the, the, the main file has actually nothing in it. And it's all the other yeah, stuff. Object dot. <laughs> right. Yeah, and it's like, it's like, how does this work? And how can I use it in my project? And you end up like spending three or four hours just digging in their, their library structure to find that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It's like uh, object dot do everything right here. <laughs> <laughs> and who knows what it does. And it, there's almost, it seems to me, an attitude commensurate with that of who cares what it does. Just type that. But then if you can't really work from a ground level and engage anything on a first principle basis, you're only going to be able to make, you know, stuff that is the product of the macros they offer you. It's kind of like trying to build a custom home and you can only shop at Home Depot or something. You know, where you're you're limited in your pieces and... That's to me, that's completely not fun. I'd rather have something I can get all the way down into and understand what it does and program it with exact intent and have it execute on that. Yeah, that's really funny how you mentioned that because uh, when I was looking to buy a house, you could definitely tell that which house was built or remodeled with the Home Depot package because they all use the same thing. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, the sad thing is that the, the China gambit is that Here's something for one-tenth the cost. Now, it's one-fourth the quality, but you don't have any options. So meanwhile, all the quality manufacturers go out of business because they can't compete. People would rather pay one-tenth for a quarter of the quality than pay full price for full quality. And so we, Ken and I have been through this just in the last couple of weeks, getting my, my parents' house ready for sale, and we've had to go in and repair things. And it's like the stuff you get today at the store barely survives installation. Whether it will work once it's in use is a whole other matter. But the, the hardware, the screws, are, don't oftentimes come. What He got something that came cross-threaded. I don't even know how that's possible. And other things that were like all cut to the wrong size, you know, mating up to glass that has fixed holes in it. It's like, how can this happen? But this is seems to be normal for just about everything these days. A co- so in the end, Trump, right? it's it's a just a it just all represents to me a giant frustrating waste of time that I'd rather not even begin. <laughs> so so that that whole mindset that you just described there is that what really drove the initial prop one? Yeah, I wanted something that was going to be uh, you know that I could program and you know know for certain how many cycles each thing was going to take and then have instructions which mate to the I/O 
activity really closely so that I could really, uh, you know, write a few lines of code and get something to happen. That's kind of like an FPGA in a way where you can, you can pick what you want to have happen when, but without the trouble with the FPGA, the neat thing is you can do anything digital with it. The problem is you'll die before you finish you know, something complex because it just takes a long time to work at such a tedious level. So I think with the prop chips, the, my idea is to give some kind of intermediate thing where you can have the quick turnaround of software. You know, we're in a split second. You can hit a key, recompile, download, and see the thing run and work with at somewhat of a macro level through instructions. So you don't have, you know, the granularity, the fine granularity you have with an FPGA, but you can work quickly enough and develop quickly enough and redefine your problem to suit a possible solution faster than you can maybe program the FPGA to do everything. And I've been working in Verilog, well, hardware description languages now since 98, and you can do anything, but all your hair will go gray and fall out by the time you achieve anything really huge. So I guess on, on that note, is like, so what does it take to design semiconductors then? That's a very broad question. Well, it's it's been getting easier in some ways, but maybe more expensive. So in the, the, the first chip we made was a completely full custom design. Um, and the way that worked was we designed, I, I, I proved everything out on an Altera FPGA, right? So I wrote a bunch of code and at that time, AHDL, which was Altera's hardware description language, did a whole proof of concept on the FPGA, got the ergonomics all worked out. So okay, I like this, this is good. Then I went and made a schematic. And then we had a layout engineer that took my schematic and drew all the polygons to realize all of the uh, transistors and wires and resistors. And uh, it has to pack, pass all the design rule checks. It has to match the schematic. And then we built the first chip from that. It was kind of, you know, we're lucky that we didn't have more trouble than we did. I think we had to make the chip three times. But the trouble is, you know, when you're writing a little piece of software, you can try it out in a second. But when you're writing a chip, or when you're making a chip, you spend maybe a year and then, or a couple of years, and then you send it off to the foundry. And that's, it. in the case of the Prop 1 chip, that was like a $60,000 turnaround that took about three months, four months sometimes, depending on fab schedule. So, uh, the fabrication part. You have to get everything right, and there's a lot of room for error. So um, what's happened over time in chip design is everything is about, what, what's this term? It's called risk, risk management, right? Because so much time and so much money is being invested, the outcome has to be assured like with a 99% success rate. Otherwise, it's, it's too expensive. Like So now... When we turn this chip around, every every time we make a design change, it's a it's well, initially we spent what 320 about Ken, 320k with on, and and the last change is about 82k. That's this year. That's this year. Right. And and so what what happens now is see, it used to be there were some all kinds of an like uh failure analysis techniques that you could use if your chip didn't work. Like at one point we had this one and a half million dollar electron beam prober, which was a super cool, it was like Star Trek. It was this machine that had a scanning electron microscope and you could train the little virtual probe on the screen 
to a wire, even through the glass passivation layer on the chip, and it was like a seven gigahertz non-loading contactless oscilloscope that would inject like, it would squirt on average like 50 electrons, no, I think it was between five and six electrons at the target over this like uh, time spliced thing where it would repeat at different offsets from a trigger that you'd give it. And it could construct waveforms on delicate bit lines and all this. So we bought that machine for 5,000 bucks from AMD in Germany. And it costs like more than that, little more than that to get it shipped out. Then we spent about 3,000 getting it up and running. And we used that thing for a while and it enabled us to debug all of the memories in the Prop 1 chip. Um, now, what's different today is all that cool technology, a lot of it has gone, it's not really under development anymore because it's gotten so difficult to work on something once it's been fabricated because of its smallness and its density that I mean, where they last left off on any kind of probing I heard about was they had this backside laser prober. So you'd have to spend all this energy dealing with your sample, your chip, grinding the back down, grinding it real thin, then selectively grinding a pocket with a focused ion beam machine to get to the bottom level, like just underneath the bottom level of the chip where the active components are. Then you could probe it with this laser, but you only had about a cumulative two seconds of probe time before you'd burn up your sample. And so... to so in, in these things were just getting, it was getting more and more expensive to do anything. So what has happened now, I see just from working it on, is that everything now is geared towards um, like predetermining that things are correct. And it's even to the point where if you get a chip back and it's not working, you don't try to probe it. You go back to the simulator and you set up a simulation that's you know, maybe more accurate than you had before, and you discover what your problem is. Because, you know, touching like a you know, seven nanometer chip, it's just, you can't really do much with that. And you, you can't always anticipate where your problems are going to be. So today, everything's about uh, this risk management. So there are lots and lots of tools that are used in modern chip design to, you know, eliminate problems before they occur. And it begins with like really elaborate models for all of the devices on the chip. You know, a type of transistor built with oxide thickness and certain dopants and uh, at every corner, in every uh, corner of possible fabrication and dimension and voltage level, they have this thing characterized so well that you can simulate it without ever having to like build it and try it. And so your chip is a giant amalgamation of these little things. So... With ON, they have all these tools that check for just all kinds of things that you wouldn't really suppose, like not just that you've logically made the chip uh, that you intended to make uh, and that it verifies against the schematic netlist, but also uh, that uh, current is being delivered through low enough impedance wiring throughout the entire die. And it will kind of determine uh, what if we have a hot spot over here and we have this signal propagating over here, the die might be relatively cool. And so they're measuring time down to fractions of a picosecond now. So every single path in your chip, every little logic transition from, from flop to flop is measured in the tiniest increments of time, accounting for wire and what the uh, attacks are gonna be from adjacent wiring and all this stuff is known ahead of time. So now it's just the whole game's different. And of course, it's gotten horrendously expensive. They say now for a five nanometer process chip uh, of moderate, well, 
let's say, typical complexity, uh, the designers are looking at an investment of $500 million, which is stratospheric. And you could probably count on one hand how many companies on earth are in the market to do that. You know, there's going to be Samsung, Apple, uh, maybe a few others, but that's it. No one, no one has 500 million bucks for that for these things. Whereas it used to just cost maybe 50,000 to to do a, a chip. It's just gotten stratospheric on the uh, on the high density, you know, super performance end. Yeah, at at, at my first job, my boss uh, he was talking to me about getting some custom chips made, and we were just toying around with the idea. And the saying at that time, and this was I guess 2009, uh, he said. You want one custom chip? It's a hundred thousand dollars. You want a hundred thousand custom chips? It's a hundred thousand dollars. Like just flat out, that was the saying. Yeah, the upfront cost now. And I, I have a friend who was working at, at a pretty big company making network switching chips, and I think they were at the twenty-eight nanometer node. And every time they wanted to buy a mask set because they had a, a huge die. It was like I think an inch by an inch. It was just gigantic. And uh, it was like a $10 million expenditure just for the tooling to try it out. Yeah, that's what I'm about to ask is, um, so with, with PCBs, you send like a Gerber package to them. Is, it, is there something similar? Since it's a, it's a bunch of masks, are you just sending masks over to the chip? Well, pad? no, it, it's like, it's something akin to Gerber. It's called GDS2. I don't remember what, what that stands for, but there was GDS, now there's GDS2. And all chip geometry data is conveyed in GDS2 format. And all this happens in the Linux, in the Unix world. So it's all just line feed, no carriage return. And it's all in, you know, zipped tarballs and everything. What, uh, what process size do you guys use? What, uh, what size transistors are you using on the prop? We'll say, so the first chip we used uh, 350 nanometer, which was pretty affordable. A small company like us could afford to do that. And at that time, uh, the mask set for a 180 nanometer process, which is what we're using now, just the mask set, never mind the NRE you'd incur getting the chip together, but the mask set was about $600,000. Our mask set at the time was, I think it was at 30K, but they charged us about 60 to run the whole chip, you know, with, with, this, with the fab run. So prices are way down. And I've heard, you know, an internal cost today for a 180 nanometer mask set is about $35,000. So this stuff comes down a lot. But when you get to the leading edge processes, like 14 nanometer, you're, you're in the several millions of dollars. Oh, that makes sense. So uh, so what makes the new, or I guess what makes the propeller different from normal microcontrollers? Okay, so the propeller was designed to have, um, because as I've programmed all my life, you're always fighting them, this issue that you've, you always have a single thread arc, or single thread architecture. You have one line of execution, right? So you have to divvy it up in time. So I thought, man, it would be great if we could do multiple things concurrently without hiccuping anything else. So, so the prop one had eight processors in it, right? But the, the, the secret sauce is to hook them together in a way where they can share memory easily. So you can have symbolically named variables that every processor can have access to without any time penalty based on whatever anyone else is up to. And so that's been our, our methodology all along. And I don't really, I haven't really looked at what, you know, these other multi-core 
chips are about that are out there now, but I kind of suspect that they're probably some kind of ad hoc uh, mixture of things that have been extant before that were tied together with some kind of bus, you know, some kind of system to share some memory. But uh, the prop was designed to be able to do that without any kind of um, exceptional event going on. You know, it's just part of the architecture. So you can write code. Let's say you have a system where you've got to handle some user interface and you've got some mm, calm data stream you have to mind. And then there's some motor control. Well, trying to do that in one controller, you could see would be impossible, right? You're not going to be able to do everything in a timely way. But if you can write separate programs for what are separate processors, then you can simplify your software effort by quite a bit. So you could make one thing that just handles the calm, the calm stuff, and then you know lays out into memory in some variable a status, and then what packets it's received and what the indices to those are. And then you can have the user interface, maybe that's the top level thing. It can be handling what's going on with the user. And then the motor control stuff can be its own thing. And you might even have some other uh, program that's coordinating all those things. And so you only have to write code for what you want to do in isolation. So it really simplifies. Because at the end of the day, you know, we're all going to die. We're not going to live forever. We don't have time to get to do everything the most, the hardest way. So it's nice to be able to cut things into like, you know, where to cut the pie is always the problem in designing anything anyway, right? So we try to make it so the, the pie can be cut. You can, you can design it this way from the outset so that your efforts minimized and your returns maximized. So, so what kind of, how's the, that Ram or the, the memory structure work? Is it like a, cause this has eight cores. Is it like an eight port Ram structure? Well, sort of, but in time. So there, there, imagine it's like a distributor cap on a V8, right? The contactor spins around and it goes, it, it goes, it services each processor in turn. So it says, okay, processor zero, we call them cogs, cog zero. What do you want to do? Read or write? And it, and it, and the cog might be there waiting within an instruction, you know, with, with the write or a request to read. And then so the, the, the hub, that's the center, takes that command, does something with the memory. And then on the next clock, he's asking the next processor, what do you want to do? And then, you know, two clocks later, he returns back to processor zero what he had ordered if he was reading. And so it kind of goes in, in a circle. So it's kind of like an eight port, but in, in time, not to make a physical eight port memory would be too huge. But if you multiplex it in time, you can do that. But see, that works okay when you're sharing processes, but a processor needs to be married to its own local memory more closely than that. So the the processors all have their own local memories, which are full speed that only it talks to. And so that's what it executes code from mainly. Although on the new chip, we can execute code from the from the hub memory as well. So yeah, let's talk about the uh, new new the new prop. Um, is it just prop two, or does that have an official yeah. name? No, that's it. We just call it prop two. And um, so it's kind of like the prop one, but it has a lot more memory because it's built in the denser process. And um, we've kind of uh, abstracted the idea of the, uh, the, the like peripherals that are mated to each processor. So each processor does have some peripherals associated with it, like a streamer that can read and write through the main memory in and out of the pins. So that's useful for doing video stuff and it can grab stuff and, and send it to DAX like every clock. It can read or write a whole 32 bits 
from the pins or to and from the main memory. And uh, it's, it works a little bit, its memory works a little bit differently and I can explain that. Um, but uh, it's, it's faster, it's got more memory. And uh, I was saying about the on-chip peripheral. So we had a counter, every cog had two counters in the original prop one, but we don't really have counters anymore. So what we did is we put a whole bunch of smarts into the IO pins themselves. So each IO pin has like, I don't know, maybe 20 different modes where it can perform because the pins themselves are analog. They can do DACs and ADCs and digital IO with, with Schmidt trigger and all kinds of level sensing. So we have some uh, like logic smarts that are tied to each pin, which will allow each pin to be its own serial port or pulse width modulator or switch mode power supply controller or analog to digital converter or uh, oversampling digital to analog converter so we can you know, try to push 16-bit quality from an 8-bit DAC. So when these things are kind of set and forget, the pro any of the processors can send those things a command, and then it'll just, the pin will just keep doing it until you give it some other instruction. And there's also USB, too. Can any pin be USB, or is that just... No, see, this is... Okay, this is another thing from my prior experience. The thing I didn't like is I didn't like this the single-threaded execution because... That was always a limiter. And then giving pins certain personalities was always a pain too. And that was a nice thing about the FPGA. A pin is a pin because it's only digital anyway, right? But anyway, every pin on the propeller chips uh, is like any other pin. They all have the same capabilities. So you could design a circuit board and simply wire pins to where things need to go. And the only... Uh, penalty you might have is if you wanted to output eight bits at a time, but you've got those pins strewn all over the place, that's going to take a little more software to affect, right? But if you want eight contiguous pins, we'll just use eight contiguous pins and then the software side becomes easy again. Yeah. And that actually would help um, between firmware and layout designers. You always get this fight between like, if your code is easier to write because like you're incrementing loop cycles for yes. pins. But you go to the layout and the layout engineer goes, well, those are like an eight different spots all over the, the microcontroller. <laughs> right, right. Who who wins? <laughs> who wins? I don't know. <laughs> but Chip, these software-defined peripherals, these are something you've been working on since the basic stamp days. Oh, okay, yeah. So 25 okay, so years about ago. The, right. It, it, well, I've always kind of liked to be able to write what are hardware peripherals in software because you have a lot of flexibility then, right? You can you can make it do whatever you want. You can't make it necessarily do anything on any given cycle or every cycle, but you can some you can often redefine what your problem is so that it can be uh, fulfilled by a possible solution you can come up with in software that's not complex. So for a long time, we've been making uh, little modules that can run on the Propeller 1 chip called, op we call them objects. Some people say it's kind of a misnomer because we don't have inheritance and polymorphism and all this business, but it's like a little module that you can instantiate on any processor and that processor just runs it. And now we have pins that can, you know, take on jobs of their own too and just run in the background. And so we try to put into hardware what we absolutely don't have the bandwidth to do in software. And then beyond that, we have the software, the assembly language fast and efficient and rich enough to be able to do a lot of stuff like CRC computations on the fly and these kinds of things so that you have the ability to, by writing a little software to talk to a hardware, you can make 
very, what looks like pure hardware things happen. And then at the higher level, we have, you know, a language which allows you to just uh, assemble these modules or objects together to build, you know, whatever you want out of parts that exist. And, and it's very easy. You don't have to worry about conflicts or anything. These things all live in separate processors or in separate bins. So they just work. You can, you can add anything in as long as it fits without ever worrying about anything hiccuping anything else. So, so this sounds uh, incredible for a, for a lack of other word, of words. I mean, if you look at a modern microcontroller data sheet and you look at the, I don't know, whichever page shows all their pin definitions, every pin nowadays has 15 different functions, but most of the time you don't get to pick where you want all those functions to go. It sounds like on a prop two, it's just pick a pin, tell it what to do, and it, yeah, there you go. And that's that sounds absolutely fantastic. Uh, so are you guys the first to really do this? And do you have a patent on this? No, we don't. You know, it's something that anybody could do, but, you know, prevailing, the prevailing mindset just keeps carrying forward. And it kind of, you know, we'll try to maybe try to attach like, oh, we got multiple cores now and we've hobbled them together in some fashion. But uh, I think, you know, when I was a kid and I, I, I started learning about all this, I had like a very different vision of how things were going to turn out than they did. I mean, now anything of sufficient complexity just spies on us, right, and betrays us. We don't even know what it's up to. But uh, my, my thought was that computers would be useful. They wouldn't just be machines that, you know, pe people would... Uh, basically uh, watch, you know, some crummy TV over. And then, uh, you know, every bad thing people might might want to do, they can do it over their little, uh, little phones now. So I always thought of computers being helpful and useful. So my intent was to kind of make stuff uh, to that end. But wait, I've already forgotten. I've gotten off track here. What was your question? Because I was trying to answer it and I, I talked too long. <laughs> <laughs> I, my, my question was, were, were, are, are, were you guys the first to have this, I guess, infinitely usable pin? I don't know that we are. And it's something that, like I said, anybody can do. But I, I think just the way things march forward, there's kind of a, I mean, what defines the world is, uh, has for a long time is C. And so a processor has to execute C and then uh, uses peripherals to do real time stuff. So everything kind of falls under that methodology. So I've, what I was trying to get at is I kind of like the idea of going back to square one, like what's actually possible using transistors and memories and, 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 and pins and whatnot and code and what can be made that's most amenable to how we want to think and would like to be able to do stuff. So I think now things are so far down the one way things have gone for so long that it's actually like retroflexively limiting people's imagination because they only imagine stuff that they can picture how to design out of stuff that already exists, right? That they're familiar with. But I'm thinking that there's got to be like, you could go way back to 19 to the sixties and start from there again and kind of move in a different direction, which would make computers a lot happier of things than they are today, especially you know, in my case, microcontrollers. You know, I mean, I don't really, I'm not really that interested to jump into some controller that has a 2000 page manual and uh, complex things. And I'm and then relying on libraries that I'll never uh, understand or, you know, they're, they're shifting like sand under my feet. That kind of thing just turns me off. I, I really like the idea of being able to just work from a very bottom level 
you know, where what are electrons going to do in this case and be able to handle things at that level without always sucking in huge protocols that where many, many decisions have already been made for you. And you're basically just raising your hand saying, oh, me too, me too. I can do that. <laughs> you sound like a true engineer's engineer. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> so uh, so you uh, the, the prop, you always had uh, the the language, I guess you could say, spin available for programming it, right? Is is the prop two going to be right. uh, be able to utilize that also? Yeah, I'm working on the next uh, spin compiler right now, and it's going to be it's much larger memory model. The chip has you know a one megabyte memory space. The prop two chip has five twelve k bytes implemented, and uh, it's oh we also uh, I built this thing into the chip. Uh, so that we can selectively skip instructions. So if you think about making an interpreter, right, you have many things which have like identical setup and takedown code with something different in the middle. Like if you want to add two things together, right, you might have to, you know, pop something off the stack, add it, maybe pop two things in theory, do some operation, push them back on the stack, even though you might kind of virtualize that stack somewhat in registers to save cycle time. So uh, we made this thing uh, that allows you to very e efficiently just like look up a long, uh, meaning a 32-bit word automatically from memory, or pick a bytecode out of the main memory from the from the streamer FIFO, which is two clocks, never more than that, and then within a six-clock span, convert that into a, a jump address and uh, a selective skip pattern, so that only instructions which are not skipped, execute and take time. So uh, it, it, maybe it's a little hard to explain this, but what it allows you to do, if, if you've ever written code and you see that, gosh, I got all these different snippets and they've got a lot of commonalities, but, and I could put calls everywhere to what's repetitive, but imagine if you could just meld all those things together and then with some table, table data, which gets picked up automatically, only the instructions you want in that sequence get executed. Does that make sense? Yeah, sure. <laughs> okay, so what it what it means is you can you can develop uh, like bytecode interpreters in this case that are very cycle efficient that uh, can pack you know that can run exclusively out of the uh, out of the uh, local memory of the processor, and uh, so this could be used for like um, you know any any kind of virtual machine, and so that's how the next uh, spin is working. So even at the same clock rate, let's say that we, we, we just compared apples to apples and slowed the clock rate down and even said that, okay, the, the prop one we're selling now takes four clocks per instruction. The new one's going to take two. So let's just say all those things are equal, right? We're probably about 15 to 20 times faster with this bytecode helper hardware in the processors than we... Than we were in prop one. So then you've got to think, okay, if we're, let's say we're 15 times, right? Then double that because instructions run twice as fast. Now we're at 30. Now, instead of going um, 80 megahertz, we can go, well, we have customers now that are running the current silicon at 360. So what, what would that be? 240 times? What, no, 120, maybe 120 times faster, but that, that's kind of overclocking. But even staying at, say, 180 megahertz, we're uh, probably 50 times faster on spin, you know, than we were on prop one for the new chip. 
Hey, Chip, should throw in there that we have a few micro Python ports underway as well. Yes, we have a few guys uh, who are, uh, one, one guy's actually taken a micro Python, uh, I guess, runtime file that was compiled for a RISC-V architecture, and he's made a just-in-time, like, assembly language translator in the Prop2 that, that runs this RISC-V image, which is a pretty inefficient way to, to, to do anything, but he did it because it helps him realize the goal with minimal effort. And it's kind of a proof of concept. So we have some other guys that are working on more of a native uh, approach where they would actually you know, program the chip in its native assembly language, and then they would have, I would think, at least 100 times the performance, maybe more of this just-in-time you know, cross-compiler. So it sounds like for Prop 2, we'll have uh, MicroPython, we'll have C, Spin, and Assembly. Is there any other languages that you're all looking to support? Yeah, initially that's it. I mean, so normally what happens is Chip will spend a lot of time and others on, on our development team making all the, the really good examples, and then that'll spur other languages and higher level stuff that people like you and I could use. You know, But uh, <laughs> I mean, ultimately, I'm sure there'll be a graphical language too. Something like another Blockly yes. port. Like flow code or something like that. Blockly. Yeah, I mean, right now you can program Propeller 1 in multi-core mode with Blockly and do impressive projects. So that's been really neat for me and a lot of customers. But primarily, Spin for commercial users will be the most common language, believe it or not. And, and then uh, for, for hobbyist makers, education will be the Python. I'll actually say as uh, spin is was the second language I learned. Um, I learned oh. assembly and then spin. So that that's my history there. <laughs> oh, that's cool. Wow. Um, so on the on feature sets for the prop two, is there a because I, I, I use the, the prop one a lot. Uh, is there a, a debugger in prop two? Oh, yeah, yeah. Actually, we, we, we put into the hardware. Um, a whole breakpoint debugging system. So you can single, there, there's there's uh, modes in there where you can single step, you can do an address breakpoint or a, a break on interrupt or on any of the three interrupt sources, and then also an asynchronous breakpoint from another cog. So is that gonna be, like, do we have to have a, a like with most microcontrollers, you have to have a, a, a programmer or a debug module? Like hardware, is there going to be something like that for this chip, or is it over USB, well, or how does that work? It should just it should just work. It could work over the serial connection that you download from. Okay, it's just a matter of software development. But it, it, it and once that debug mode is set up in a cog, it cannot be detected nor defeated by the code running in the cog. How does that work? It ha what what we do is when uh, a debug interrupt occurs, which is not maskable. Um, we shift in some other slight, small amount of memory into the uh, cog address space and use that as a buffer to move things out to a predetermined uh, buffer in HubRAM. And then we can, and then we, we, we can you know, run small amounts of code to inspect all the registers, look at the pins, and then zip things back up and return like nothing happened. Now, the thing will note that some time disappeared if it's paying attention. Right, and if it's relying on a smart pin to respond in the next ten clocks, and a, and the debug interrupt was like two hundred clocks, then you're gonna miss that. So it's not, you know, we'd have to have like a super all states aware system alternatively. But 
for what this thing cost, it was it was effective enough for a lot of stuff. So uh, just out of random curiosity, um, going back just a second, on the new version of Spin, is it going to be all super colorful like the last one? Uh, I suppose so. Are you not liking the color? Are you are you stuff? talking about like the different colors between like the constants, variable section? Okay, yeah. Well, I, actually, so it was interesting. I di- I wasn't even aware of. Well, I shouldn't say I was. I I, I knew of the propeller. Uh, before I met Parker, but I had never actually even touched one. And then I joined up as an engineer at Macrofab. And for the first two years, Parker was like, well, the propeller does everything. And so like I did my first project with Parker <laughs> looking over my, my shoulder. And, and I'm like, what is this language? Like everything's so super colorful. Uh, so I was just curious. Oh. Like it kind of seems to be your fingerprint in a way. Co- cogs and colors, right? I guess so. Yeah. I mean, we tried to make the whole idea of spin is to make there's some things that I really hated when I had to get you know, above assembly language and work in like Pascal is that this typing business drives me nuts. And I understand why things get typed, but really your hands get tied so badly that stuff that you just know you need to do becomes like so difficult. You got to find the right typecast to get the thing unhitched. And it's just so much trouble. So we have like kind of a typeless language with a default size of 32 bits, you know, and um, that's the idea. And then you know, any kind of loop can be expressed with like, in our, we made this keyword repeat. So the whole goal of the language was to make something that was like terse. So there's not a whole lot that you have to learn in order to be able to use it, but also powerful. And then it wouldn't tie your hands behind your back and cripple you with all kinds of inane stuff that, you know, so you, you can be like a preschooler in a, in a safety net, but you can't actually get anything done. That's what I feel like with a lot of these high level systems. So spin is, you know, you got to like, you got to wear the pants, but you have an easy time with things. <laughs> Elastic waistband pants. <laughs> <laughs> that, I mean, that's why I always liked spin or at least, at least prop one is I, I, I Steven just said is you, I could do anything with it. You could, it's, it's that software defined peripheral idea is I need to make this serial spy bus thing that has some funky timing and stuff. I can do that with that. I don't have to go hunt a 2000 page data sheet to find that one register. I need to click to like make it N uh, like nine and one serial or something like <laughs> oh, that. Yeah. Yeah. I know what you mean. Yeah. 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 That, that kind of stuff. I mean, it's better. I think it's better to have freedom uh, to, kind of set things up the way you want than it is to have to go through some big arbitrary construct that someone else put together that maybe wasn't, that they weren't really aware of even how it was going to be used. <laughs> so they, you know, it was designed from kind of a wrong perspective to begin with. Now you're stuck with it and there's nothing you can do about it. So I got a question on, this is going a little bit back to chip design, is testing and validation. Is that something that y'all have to do with chip design? Because I know, like, if you build a hardware product, you have to get FCCCE certified. You have to make sure you're not emitting radiation or, well, I guess it's electromagnetic radiation. Um, ESD, stuff like that. Uh, yeah, we really, the only thing is ESD. So any kind of FCC testing would be the responsibility of uh, whoever designed it into the product that it's in, right? Because this is just a component level thing. Um, but we do have to design and then uh, validate that it can withstand, you know, 2K or 4K uh, human body model shocks. And that's about it. But 
there's a lot more stuff. I've been really impressed with On Semi, who's done, who's going to be the fab and also did the, the whole digital design for this. They're so comprehensive in their methodology that they check for like everything that you you hear like, oh yeah, yeah, that could be a problem. Well, they've got some app that they run that checks for whatever it is that's of concern. And you know, the, the tools that they use to do this, if you wanted to set up one engineer with all this stuff, it would probably cost $2 million a year just for the software leases. And, uh, but on, you know, they run a big foundry business. They have a few design centers so they can absorb those kinds of costs and make it work. Um, but they, they achieve quality today because so many problems have been encountered in the past and identified and tools have been developed to uh, assure that those things are, don't exist in your design at hand. And so they, they use a lot of those. So the process is very methodical. It's, it's really not, what they do is really not nearly a create, so much a creative process at all. It's pretty much a rote checklist process. And by the time they get down their checklist, you actually have a pretty high quality part because I could give them my design files and they could make a good chip or a bad chip, you know, one that, one that is flaky or not. But the way it turns out with their methodology is it's super solid. So like in this case now with, with their Prop 2, uh, we figured initially we'd have about a 2.4 watt power dissipation max on the package. So we picked a package which dissipates the heat really well through a big bottom thermal pad. And that goes down to a via stack and then a heat spreader on the bottom side of the circuit board. Now you only need to do this if you're going to be running the thing at high power, right? You can always run at lower clock frequencies or whatever. But anyway, so they determined, okay, we want to, we're going to, our goal was 85, minus 55C to 85C. Then they figured, okay, well, at, at the amount of power we're dissipating, and we have a TJA on this package of 20 degrees C per watt, uh, and we want to have a 20 degree C uh, overhead allowance on, for hot spots on the die that don't even get out to the package, right? So they wind up figuring that, okay, we need to have this thing passing all of its timing and all of its tests at 150 degree C junction temperature on the top end, which is extreme. I don't know if anybody will ever get there, right? But it's, but it's designed to run it 180 or in the second turn, 175 megahertz. We had to slow it down just a little bit to get everything to, 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 to fit right. So 175 megahertz at you know 1.8 volts minus 5%, worst process conditions, 150 C junction temperature, it will go at 175 megahertz. And, and check this out, this is a really cool thing. You know when you design something, you, you, you start to crank up the clock and at some point something fails, right? Oh yeah. You might notice like memory misses or something or some peripherals not working right or your code started not functioning right. Well, this the design methodology that really everyone uses these days where they're tracking picoseconds of every path, you know, sub-picosecond timings for the wires, the buffers, the logic gates, the, the, the setups on the flops, the outputs, the queue delays, the clock to queue delays. All these things are, are so carefully done that imagine you've got in our case, in this latest chip, we have 830,000 instances of cells in the, in the logic thing, in the logic pool, right? And um, what was I going to say? Hold on here. Lost my train of thought. Ah, so 
what happens is in order to get timing met, you want to push this thing to the limit. Well, you can't just tell the tools go as fast as you can because it'll 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 never end trying to optimize stuff until it says, okay, I found something I cannot push. So you have to give it a realistic timing goal, right? And what it does, imagine you've got all these cells with all these wires and all these buffers needed to interconnect them. And uh, some things really need to be close together, but stuff that's really lacks on timing requirement can be spread further out to allow other cells to congregate closer together and shorten their wire lengths and eliminate buffering and all kinds of stuff that would have been needed to drive longer wires. So what happens is when you get a chip back from a process like this and you start cranking up the frequency, you don't see any sign that anything is wrong until the whole thing goes kaput because they optimized up against a wall. So there are tens of thousands of paths that are at the timing goal right on the picosecond. You see? It's not like there's something that was sticking out that was gonna fail early. When the thing fails, thousands, tens of thousands of paths fail simultaneously. So it's nice to have that because you know how far you can overclock it. It's not like there's anything mysterious that you know, is, is hiding or lurking. When it fails due to frequency, it fails systemically. Yeah, it's not like overclocking a, a, a regular PC because you have to test it and you'll get weird. Uh, a lot of times you get memory issues, uh, misses and stuff, but like sometimes it could just be um, like the uh, the Southbridge bus goes. I, I, I was overclocking right. when, when computers yeah. had Southbridges. So, um yeah, and see, the reason yeah. that is is because the south bridge and the memory were not part of the chip design. Yes. Right? So the, the, the chip design methodology ensures that, that chip will keep working uh, past the failure point of the externally connected things, most likely. Yeah, usually. That's why you're seeing the external stuff fail, but the chips probably. If the chip were to fail, you'd see like it, you'd just see it flatline all of a sudden. Yep. And, and, uh, and we think that uh, PCB design is hard. Like this stuff sounds well, this hey, is incredible. <laughs> this is it's all computer driven. I mean, no human can touch these modern layouts. There's no point. So the way the entire chip is built is they they hone these scripts which direct the tools, right? So so months are spent setting up these scripts which drive the tools to get the desired outcome. So if they notice there's some characteristic problem that's occurring, they'll write a script to address that, not on a not on a node basis. Right, and it has nothing to do with like cell names or flop names or anything, but just a general rule, which will then be applied to the whole design, and the compiler will suck that in and make it part of its criteria for doing everything. And then in the it's, end, it's hive mind of scripts. Yes. <laughs> yeah, but see, all this was born of the problem that it is so expensive to build modern chips that if this can be, if these, if if, if failures can be eliminated beforehand, it's worth a lot. And it and it kind of that's the end. That's the way the industry now works. Sure, sure. So uh, I, I'm I'm interested. We've uh, certainly heard a good bit of uh, Chip's thought on the uh, Prop Two. Uh, Ken, I'd I'd love to hear some uh, some stuff from you on uh, on what you think of the Prop Two. <laughs> <laughs> you know, truthfully, I for it's been a 13 year process. And so um, it's amazing watching Chip do this and learning as he goes too. I mean, he has the ability to load this whole thing into his brain and, and see the pieces work. <clears throat> and I think he's learned a lot uh, using the tools this time. You know, we've restarted the process several times along the way. 
over this period um, through learning with different teams and different layout approaches. And it wasn't until recently that it all really came together. Um, so, you know, I'm too busy really running the business at the moment because for me, it's been a mostly a financial <laughs> financial endeavor to get here. Um, that's been my job is to support Chip to get the funding in place and to run the business in a way that we could do this um, and do something big. So, yeah, I've, I'm still learning the P1 and I, I haven't used it up entirely. I do simple things with it, but I have a lot of fun. And with the P2, it will likely carry my microcontroller learning experience till I'm 70 years old, to be honest. And it's going to take a while for it to, to become um, easy for me to use. So I, I'm super excited. I mean, I, I, it's, I can't wait at this point to see this get done. I mean, we're, we're full bore at Parallax right now teaching teachers, but this next step is huge. I've, I've been wait, really waiting to be part of it. So, so when can people get their hands on a prop two? You, you, you knew that question was coming eventually. <laughs> so, okay. So we have some initial, uh, like first run prototypes, uh, that we have now about 110 customers with these things on boards and, um, they're busy. You can see them every day. They're posting things on the forum uh, as they play with these things and develop tools for them. But we had some problems with the initial silicon. We had a timing glitch. There was a race condition in the logic where causing, like trying to drive an output pin to float would actually sink it halfway low before the float signal got there. So that's, we needed to fix that. So that's been fixed. Uh, we also had some um, sign extension problems from differences stemming from the Verilog I was using for the FPGA and the hardcore Verilog that they use for the ASIC design. Um, mine was more liberal with its inferences about what is signed and what's not. So we had some circuits that just weren't doing the sign extension. And uh, therefore, you know, some blocks like our color space converter just didn't work. Uh, our uh, smart pin mode that did the um, Quadrature encoding didn't work, and there was another minor thing. But anyway, that's been fixed, and th that's been fixed. And then during that time, I added a whole bunch of stuff. We did a lot of research when we got that silicon back on the ADC and how it was working. So we put in um, a whole bunch of enhanced ADC stuff now into the smart pins, so we can do sync two and sync three conversions, which are a way to get a higher effective number of bits per your sample periods, and uh, the chips grown a lot. But they just just today. Uh, Wendy, who's the uh, our lead engineer at OnSemi, who's running this whole process, uh, she was going to send to me the stuff to sign off on the tape out, so they'd send it to Fab. But she didn't get done with it today because I didn't hear from her. But I'll probably hear from her tomorrow. But they're anxious to get this done. And uh, once that happens, it's going to spend, what do they say, Ken? How many weeks? It's longer than it was. 15. So July 2019, we'll have the next thousand chips. Yeah, and we ordered a thousand extra this time. So hopefully it works. There shouldn't be any surprises because, uh, you know, we just in the last couple of days, uh, she simulated actually downloading a program into the chip that doesn't exist yet. And then, you know, having a conversation with it, seeing it run applications that were downloaded. And that's all working okay. So uh, when we get the next chip back, you know, hopefully there's no problems at all. We've got uh, some phase lock loops, some timing source improvement, a lot of logic enhancements and the bug fixes. And uh, we'll be able to build a whole bunch more of these, uh, these evaluation boards 
and then get those out. And then meanwhile, I'm working on the spin two interpreter and that should be done. I mean, not the interpreter. I've got the interpreter done, but the, the compiler for it. So the whole spin thing should be running by the time the chips come out. So in July, we'll have interesting stuff. Very cool. I can, uh, I can think of uh, two podcast uh, hosts that uh, would be happy to test them out for you. <laughs> All right. So uh, we'll send them. Remember, Ken. Yeah, got yeah. it. The, um, so you, you mentioned your forums. Is that where your community lies? Uh, pretty much. Yeah, there's not anything else that I'm aware of. And it's just a handful of people. There are about 25 regulars that are on there almost 24-7. And uh, other people, you know, drop in and out. Um, but uh, one guy has made a fourth interpreter, which is actually in the ROM. Uh, so that when you start up the chip, you don't actually need any kind of development software for it. You can have a conversation with it through a terminal and you can kick off its fourth interpreter and, and do all kinds of stuff. And he's got his fourth augmented now. So he's, he's playing like whole video movies on the chip using an SD card. And uh, he's got a little terminal program that he can have a chat with it on. Cool. And I'm really looking forward to being able to do a lot of signal processing stuff. I really like audio a lot. And this chip has in it a cortic resolver, which can do all the transcendentals. It can do sine, cosine, complex, arctangent, uh, log, exponent, everything for music. Very Steven cool. Steven would be interested in that. Yep, yep, yeah, that sounds great. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> just, this may be way too premature, but for a single chip uh, in, the, in the future, what, uh, what kind of price point would we be looking at? Uh, can, I would think probably around our costs are approaching five bucks. So uh, I would think $10 or so. And we've got a lot to recoup. We've got 13 years sunk in this. And uh, I think for volumes, it could get lower, but probably for low quantities, what do you think, Ken, 10 to 12 bucks? Something in there. Yep. Sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> you never know. And it doesn't really matter. I mean, no. what do you expect? To recover your ROI, we'd have to price them each at a hundred thousand dollars if we want to get our money back. <laughs> oh, sure, sure, yeah, yeah. Well, then we wouldn't sell any, though. Right, right. Um, no, but really, what this thing's about is it's. I the whole point is it's going to be really fun to work with, you know, and stuff I see just becoming increasingly unfun over time. More complexity, more, uh, you know, lack lock. Lack of knowledge about how anything can work and loss of control over things. This is something that kind of respects the programmer because it lets him do what he wants. And there's a, a rich set of stuff in the chip to be able to do really fun things with like all those cortic things I mentioned. And um, so it's really an investment. You know, people might say, well, 10 bucks, forget that. I can get this arm over here for, for 50 cents. But the thing is, you know, a lot of your quality of life is the experience and how much fun you have working on stuff. So, and, and really in America, how many units do inventors make of anything? Maybe a couple hundred, a couple thousand, you know? So what is their time worth and what is the, uh, you know, what's their peace of mind and enjoyment factor worth? It's actually worth a lot. So you could get this chip and have a whole lifetime of fun with it for, for 12, 10 or 12 bucks, if that's what you want to do. Or you could, you know, use it to design a product, which would have, you know, a higher ticket cost in the end, but you might get there 10 times sooner. And I think most of the applications are in like the uh, 10 to a thousand unit range too. Sure. Yeah. 
Yep. Yeah, we actually uh, designed a pinball controller based off the parallax propeller. It did our audio video. Oh, was this with yep. Ben Heck? Yep. Oh, yeah. Awesome project. Wasn't Roy Eltham doing he that? He did our... Involved in yeah, that? Roy did our audio uh, uh, assembly. Ah. Uh. And I, I, I actually just grabbed that in my, my um, drawer of dev boards, and I have my original parallax propeller dev oh, board yeah. I built <laughs> when I was like Neat. 19 years old. Wow. Well, how old are you now? 30. Wow, so that was 11 years ago. Somewhere around there. <laughs> 2008-ish. Well, yeah, so we were two years into making Prop 2 at that point. The time goes by quickly, doesn't it? <laughs> so um, what, what's your favorite story about the Parallax adventure? Hmm. Ken, what do you say? Gosh, I don't know. There are a few things that really stand out. Some of them are too colorful to talk about here, but... <laughs> <laughs> one of the memorable you, times we, we do say a lot of things on this podcast <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean this is a safe story it was chip is never on time for anything like propeller two or getting to any place but uh once when p1 came out we had to go to europe and meet all of our distributors and uh to do a, a presentation and we had 21 of them travel to amsterdam and chip and i decided to travel together and we just had one disaster after another trying to get to SFO. The minute we got there, they closed the gate on us. And this was just an absolute hassle. $10,000 later, we had two tickets. We walked in minutes before this whole thing started, and he was on the spot. It was rough, but it was funny, wasn't it, Chip? Yeah, I, I, had, I had forgotten about that. Yeah. <laughs> That's when you erase from your memory, right? Well, my main memory is that when we were in Utrecht, Holland, we got off the out of the airport onto the train and, and it was, we weren't sure where to get off. We were asking people for any information and nobody would talk to us. It was just the most bizarre thing. And finally some girl was getting off the train and she told us what we needed to know. And then she stepped off the train, but like they were very allergic to us. I couldn't figure that out. I mean, in America people would talk to you, but over there, I don't know, maybe they're just very leery of people or something, but it was kind of bizarre. I would have thought the Dutch would have been, more friendly than that. So where can people get involved with Parallax? Uh, I just go to our website. Can I tell you one other story? Yeah, go ahead. Please go for okay. it. This isn't really a story so much. It is it's kind of something that's happened a lot, which I really like. So I worked on this Prop 1 chip, right? Because I really loved the idea of making something that was going to be fun and, and powerful. And so we had a lot of, uh, a lot of feedback from customers, you know, over the years that, they really enjoyed it, and it kind of got them, some of them it got them back into electronics. They had been on a 20-year hiatus, and they somehow came in contact with the prop chip, and they started playing with it, and they really enjoyed it. So that is really meaningful to me because that is that was my intent. You know, it's sort of like a pheromone was sent out into the atmosphere, and certain people out there pick it up and resonate with it. You know, some just may ever be oblivious or not like it for whatever reason. But there are some people that totally got the idea. Like, like it uh, sounds like you were you were enjoying it. Oh yeah, I, I like I like the parallax propeller a lot. You know, Chip, I could add too. Since we're so involved with students now, I and we track them for so many years. There's so many kids I've met at science fairs around the country that come up to me. You know, like nine, ten years old, and I, we give them a kit, and and now they're engineers. And I see how that the whole sharing with them gives them a place to go, something they're interested in, exposure to something really fun. 
and it does create careers. Yes. We see a lot of that all the time. I mean, these kids will come up to us, you know, full-grown engineers now and say, I met you in 2002 at the whatever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's good. Well, you know, there's so much uh, growth to be had and fun experience, you know, realizing ideas. You just got to have something that permits you to do that and gets out of your way and gives you some capability. So that's kind of what I like about this sort of work. Um, and when people find that, that's totally like that the, we hit the bullseye. That was the whole point. But, you know, today what kind of concerns me is like the, the way that everyone has their smartphone and everything and their, their, their attention is so sucked up in these things that I was reading the other day that of the big uh, social media companies like Facebook and Google, they have they realize that the, the they have saturated people's time. There's no more time for people to look at screens in a day. And you know who their biggest competitor is? Who's that? Fortnite. No. Fortnite. Oh no. No. So so I my biggest fear is that we finish this prop two chip. It's really cool, but people don't have the attention spans to get into it. That would be sorry. <laughs> Propeller Propeller Royale, that's what it is. Uh, hundred well, people I was about to say it'd be like leaves. the top three is going to be you know people looking at Facebook, Fortnite, and then Parallax Propeller. <laughs> there, Maybe there we go. <laughs> I mean it, it it takes a little investment to get into something like this, but once you're on the road, oh man, it's like a whole universe. You know, it's like a big horizon in front of you. But I just hope people people's attention spans haven't been shortened to the point where they won't be able to enjoy it. Well, people right now have to dig through 2,000-page data sheets to find what they need. So maybe they are still long enough. Yes. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> yeah, our, the, the, the document that fully well, almost fully describes, it doesn't get into the details of the pins, but that wouldn't take much more. It's a Google Doc. It's only 75 pages, and it completely outlines the whole architecture down to how you operate it for the Propeller 2 chip. And people have used this to build everything that's been built. So it's really not that complex. And again, it's designed to like be amenable to your brain, you know, so you're not being asked to understand bizarre things, but things that are congruous and make sense. Yeah, I think when I started with the Parallax Propeller, there was a single page PDF that has all the instructions for assembly and all the spin stuff. Oh yeah. I think it was only one page long. And it's like everything you need to program it. I think we had like 65 or 69 instructions back then. Now we have, we're pushing like 400. Oh, for spin? No, for, for the assembly language. Oh, boy. But there's a lot of things that do a lot of cool stuff that would otherwise take lots of separate instructions. So I, I know we're going way back into the weeds, but so those extra instructions, are those still top level or I guess bottom level instructions where like they have a hardware thing it does? Yes. Okay. Yes, yes. Yeah, we have things that can take pixel data like, you know, four 8-bit fields and multiply the bytes together or add the bytes together with saturation. You know, these, <laughs> in, in these two kinds clock of things. cycles, so right? Do, uh, that, that one actually takes, I think, seven clock cycles because I didn't want to build all those multipliers in parallel because it would have grown the silicon too much. So I, 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 I kind of multiplex them in time. We do like it's two clocks times four, but then we get one cycle for free or something. I think it takes seven clocks to run that instruction. 
but it's doing four 8-bit multiplies in sequence. So Ken and Chip, where can people get involved with Parallax? Oh, so the forums are, are big with this. Okay, forums.parallax.com is one spot. And then, of course, the usual uh, social media. Or come see us. So where, where are y'all looking at it at? Rockland, where? California. All right, cool. And uh, can they can people just show up, or do they have to give prior notice? It helps, but you can just show up. <laughs> Party yeah, at Parallax. Be, beware, you're going to have like 100 people next week just show up. Well, okay, <laughs> since you mentioned it. Um, when the Propeller 1 was early released, we had a lot of expos. We had a lot of big events um, around the country. We will be having a Propeller Expo in Rockland, and um, we'll, we'll invite everybody. We will expect you know several hundred people. We'll have tents set up and presentations. Uh, from early adopters and we were going to do it here april may but um we had some problems with the with the die and we're going back and so maybe we'll be able to do this in the fall could everybody's we, invited could we come and do a podcast then uh, live yeah that'd be great that would be a lot of fun i will see what we can do um and yeah with that, and your friends will be here too <laughs> oh Roy yeah and joe oh it sounds like we need to make this happen yeah and, i think so yeah. too so with that, do you all want to sign us out of the podcast? Okay, Ken, you want to do it? <laughs> you do it this time, Chip. <laughs> okay, so that was the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. Uh, we are your guests, Chip Gracie and... Ken Gracie. And we are your hosts, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. Later, everyone. Take it easy. Thank you, yes you, our listener, for downloading our show. If you have a cool idea, project, topic, or cool semiconductor story, let Stephen and I know. Tweet us at MacFab, at Longhorn Engineer, or at Analog ENG, or email us at podcast at macfab.com. Also, check out our Slack channel. If you're not subscribed to the podcast yet, click that subscribe button. That way you get the latest map episode right when it releases. And please review us wherever you listen as it helps the show stay visible and helps new listeners find us.